We're going to read from the book of Revelation, chapter 3, and we're going to look at verses 7 to 13. This will be Jesus' letter to the church of Philadelphia. And it begins at verse 7, saying, And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, The words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say, that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Now, I don't have to tell you that this particular passage has a lot of deep meaning that we could interpret, and uh, I probably could spend the next several hours interpreting with you, but I'll encourage you to keep, stay tuned, because in mid-September, Bethany and I will resume the Revelation Bible study on Wednesday night, and we can then come back to this in more great uh, depth because there's a lot there about the second coming of Christ and the nature of the church. But for now, I want to concentrate on the problem that it represents in this letter to the Church of Philadelphia, the closing doors, the oppression and pressure that seems to be happening to the people in Philadelphia. You notice that this is one of the two churches of seven that doesn't receive any criticism from Jesus, only praise. So as a way of examining how this wilderness wandering leads some people to be oppressed and others to be oppressors, even when they have certain things in common, I want to continue this wilderness wandering message series by remembering the wilderness wanderings of the Israelites in the Exodus and the book of Numbers, and then seeing how it connects with what we just read from Revelation. First of all, I note that the people of God often lose faith when they're wandering in the wilderness. The first thing I notice is that when they're in these wilderness times where they're not comfortable, they lose faith. And when they lose faith, they almost always, some at least, find themselves looking for things that give them comfort and gravitating to them. Now, as you heard last week, the problem that we run into is, is that 
God is not in the business of satisfying our flesh. And so when we ask God to feed our flesh, God often is silent. And it's God's silence that sometimes drives us to feed our flesh because of a lack of faith. Faith requires you to let your, your flesh just go without and to trust that God is feeding you the things that matter most. When the people were wandering in the wilderness in the Exodus in the book of Numbers, what you see is, is that if they worried about whether they were going to eat or not, they didn't need to worry. God provided them with food every day, although their flesh craved a different kind of food after a while. And if they were worried about their clothes wearing out or their shoes wearing out or their tents or any of the other necessary things that they required, God provided for that, and their clothes didn't wear out, and their shoes didn't wear out, and their tents didn't wear out, and their things lasted for the whole time they wandered in the wilderness. God met the essential needs of their flesh. But when their flesh craved more, they got into trouble. So one of the critical elements of wilderness wandering is, is being able to accept that God will not satisfy your flesh beyond what is essential. Now what happened in the Exodus is a story that you're probably familiar with, especially if you've seen the various movies about this incident, but as you may recall, Jesus, uh, the uh, Israelites rather had been in the wilderness near the mountain where Moses met God. And while Moses was in the mountaintop receiving the Ten Commandments from God, the people down below had decided that maybe Moses wasn't coming back. And they became afraid, and their flesh and their faith, their flesh became strong and their faith became weak. And so the people began to complain. They began to reason with their leaders. And you know, there was this one man named Aaron who was Moses' brother and chief spokesperson. It's important to remember that this is Aaron, the brother of Moses, and the chief spokesperson. In other words, he has, he has communicated and relayed the word of God to people. And yet somehow these same people have applied so much pressure on Aaron that he caved in and agreed with their, frankly, blasphemous decision. You see, the people had become so accustomed to experiencing God in the person of Moses that when Moses was no longer present, they didn't feel that God was present because they considered God's presence something that could only be experienced in a tactile means that their flesh could recognize. So Moses was God as far as they were concerned, or at least the representation of God on earth. And Moses didn't appear to be coming back. So they convinced Aaron that he was losing control of this whole motley bunch and that this faith crisis they were having could be resolved if they just had something tactile that they could touch and see like they had when Moses was present. And Aaron 
caved in to the pressure, ordered them to bring all of their gold jewelry together. They melted it down and he crafted for them a golden idol of the, in the form of a calf. Remember this story? And they worshiped it and they danced around it. And Aaron, the spokesperson for Moses and the one who relayed the word of God to Pharaoh and to the people, Aaron, this same Aaron, Moses' right-hand man, the chief of the priests, this Aaron said of the golden calf, these are your gods, O Israel, the gods who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Hear what he said? They aren't worshiping a alternative God. They've created an image that is familiar and safe to them, one that looks like the gods they worshiped in Egypt. And they've called it the God who delivered them out of Egypt. They tried to put God in a box. They tried to create an image that satisfied their flesh, something they could touch, something they could dance around, something they could pray to, because they couldn't accept that God was omnipresent, bigger than anything they could possibly conceive of, and always present and timeless. They couldn't wrap their mind around who God really is and they didn't seem to be really interested in doing so. Rather, they decided that if Moses wasn't there to be their representation of God, then they needed something else for their flesh. And the worst part is they reasoned it out and presented Aaron with so much pressure that he caved in and gave them what they wanted. And of course, when Moses comes down from the mountain with the two tablets, he sees what they're doing and immediately hurls those tablets at them and condemns them for what they're doing. Remember this, though, because a lot of people over the years, myself included, had been confused that they had created an alternate or a false god. They didn't do that. They created something that they thought would be a good representation of God. And God said, you will not make graven images of me. Ironically, the tablets contain truths about their relationship with God that they were openly defying. And so no wonder Moses throws the tablets at them. And of course, in the Cecil B. DeMille classic, The Ten Commandments, that begins a whole cataclysm of the earth opening and swallow. He sort of combines several stories from the book of Numbers into one cinematic effect. Moses throws the tablets at their idol and they all fall into the earth with their idol. Eventually Moses goes up and gets another copy. God's God, he can make more. But it, Aaron is asked by Moses, what, what were you thinking? What, what the heck are you doing here? And Aaron doesn't have an excuse. He just makes up a bunch of rambling, you know, like, well, you know, they were unhappy and they made me do it. And, you know, I thought it would be better than, you know, having full-on rebellion and everything. So basically he caved under the pressure and he didn't have the courage to hold fast. Now, back to the church in Philadelphia. 
Jesus says to them, I'm the one who opens doors and they stay open. I'm the one who closes doors and they stay closed. Anybody who's closing doors on you can't keep me out. And this question of what this means is something we discussed for 45 minutes or so in the Bible study a few minutes ago, the Sunday school class. But the bottom line is, is we've come to the conclusion that these people were under a great deal of pressure because they were doing something that the status quo didn't approve of. They, they were not being physically abused like the church at Smyrna, the other one Jesus commended and did not criticize. They were simply being pressured, political pressure, social pressure, economic pressure. They were being ostracized by people of their own particular community. Just to put it in perspective, when Jesus refers to the synagogue of Satan, first of all, synagogue is a word that means gathering. And he tells them that they are being persecuted by people who think they're the real deal Jews, but they're not. Okay? To put this in perspective so that we're not tempted to make this about Judaism and Jewishness, let me just say that the same thing could have been said about most churches if Jesus wanted to go there. There are people who aren't really deeply committed to what we would call the core tenets of Christianity. They just like going to church. And they don't like it when really committed core Christians rock the boat. Now, now we can relate to that. So these Jews, because most of the Christians in the world of the very early church were Jews. Paul went to the synagogue. Every time he went to a new town to preach Jesus, he started in the synagogue. If he got sideways with the synagogue leader, he'd park himself right outside the synagogue and preach. But he always started with the Jews. And it's been argued, and I think legitimately so, that Paul's heart was always for the Jews. He didn't have anything against the Gentiles, but he was driving everything he did towards the salvation of the Jews. And he saw that saving the Gentiles was a key way to getting the Jews saved. And so it stands to reason then that these Christians in Philadelphia were in large part Jewish converts to Christianity. And the people who considered themselves good Jews were persecuting them. Not so much physically, but they wouldn't do business with them. They would call them out on anything they considered politically incorrect. It's not politically correct for you to say certain things. That's why you people are trouble. We don't want anything to do with you. And so they were treated like outsiders. The doors were shut to them. And Jesus says, look, one of these days they're going to realize that they've been doing this with name only. They, they call themselves Jews because that's what they've always been. That's where they've always gone to church. It's what they've... Jesus would say the same thing to Christians today, I'm sure. There are many, many people in every church who practice the religious activities, but their hearts are not convicted by sin, and they have not surrendered their souls to the authority, absolute authority of Christ, which is why we call him Lord or King. And we who are committed to him in that way will sooner or later offend the people who prefer a comfortable religion. One that bends and 
wavers and gives you flexibility and allows you to interpret things in a way that accommodates a variety of needs of the flesh. And this is why Jesus says to the people in Philadelphia who are holding fast, they're keeping the faith, he says, hold fast. Now, I'm kind of, you know, a nut for all things transportation. I love reading books and things about sailing ships and all of that. Now, let me tell you about this nautical term. Hold fast means tighten up the rigging for the storm and then grab onto it and hold it tightly through the storm. Now, if you think about the tall sailing ships, they've got to have control over the ship during the storm, which means they need a certain amount of sailcloth available to them to drive the ship through the storm. But the rigging has to be extra tight because it will otherwise lead to the breaking of the masts, and that will, of course, lead to the destruction of the ship. So when they say hold fast, they mean the, it's, the weather's getting ugly and we need to tighten up the rigging because the whole ship is held together by that rigging. Because in the same way the, the uh, ropes and the cables hold the mast firm, they also pull the ship, they gird up the ship. So it's all tied together to these center beams in the middle. In the same way when the people on the ship are making their way across the decks during the storms, they will stand, extend what they call lifelines from stem to stern and from starboard to larboard or port to starboard. And the rule of thumb for all sailors is one hand for the ship and one hand for you. So if you have a task to perform on a ship, especially in stormy seas, always one hand is firmly anchored to a lifeline or to the rigging or to some solid part of the ship. You never ever use both hands to perform a task, especially in stormy seas, always one hand for the ship and one hand for the task. Now when Jesus uses this term to say to the Christians in Philadelphia, hold fast, he means hold the lifeline and never let go. Tighten the rigging. In my book, the ship we're talking about is the church, whether it's this local expression of the church or the church universal. In my mind, tightening the rigging means get the basics right because they are the things that hold the whole thing together, especially in the storm. And for me, the rigging that we must hold fast is the gospel, a plain gospel, not a multifaceted gospel that's for certain people at certain times and for certain circumstances, a gospel that is the same gospel that Jesus preached, that the apostles preached. It's a gospel that is plain and simple. It's the good news that this is not all there is. There is more to our existence than living and dying. The good news is, is that we can have eternal life, but the key to having eternal life is to recognize that we can't make that happen in and of our own ability. That we are inherently 
given over to disregard and disrespect for God and therefore the only way that we can have eternal life is to seek some outside intervention with God that would justify God letting us have eternal life and not only that but in his presence and not only that but even as his children. So the simple, plain gospel is, is that God gave the most that God, our creator, could give in order that you could be saved from your sin and welcomed into his eternal presence, even as his children. And if you accept that that gift is God's justification for letting you in, that's good news, and that saves you for all eternity and not only that, but he empowers you with the Holy Spirit, a new life in the Holy Spirit, so that you can live the remainder of your eternity, oxymoron, as a new creation in Christ. Holding fast to this plain gospel means we can make it through the storm. Because we don't need a lot of religious rules or a bunch of weird interpretations of Jesus to get us through the storm. All we need is Jesus, the lifeline. One hand on that truth. One hand to help you through this life doing whatever you're called to do. I am your pastor, but I'm also a person with one hand on my lifeline. And in desperate circumstances, I put both my hands on the lifeline and the church will just have to do this without me for a while. I don't know. Same thing with your job. Same thing with your life. You're a teacher. And you're going back to school and things are scary because the kids are probably going to spread this thing because everybody knows the kids are germ factories. Right? You know, so, so there's a lot to be anxious about. One hand on the lifeline. Courtney and one hand on your task, right? One hand on the lifeline, Laura and Bethany, one hand on your task. You see? That's what he means when he says, hold fast. He commended them for their patient endurance. Boy, if you don't know what that means, just get on Facebook for a while. <laughs> just watch the news you know, I get, I can't tell you how, how they, they don't hurt me bad, but they're just things that have been said to me, communicated to me in different ways that are hurtful simply because I wear a mask when I'm within your proximity. I'm obviously not wearing it right now, but I'm also pretty far away from you. But some people think that wearing a mask is tantamount to taking the mark of the beast. I don't know, I just see it as something to do that makes you feel safer when you're around me. And since I have an important message to share with you about Christ our Savior, a plain gospel, I'd rather put you at ease so you can hear the word. I guess it just depends on how you feel about yourself. If you recognize that the only way you can really call yourself a Christian is if you submit yourself as a sinner to God's grace through Jesus Christ, then at some point you must realize that as one who has submitted yourself to God because you can't save yourself, you might also want to do the things that God declares important. And he says, love one another. 
And yet, in the church, even among people who all think of themselves as Christians, there is dissent and chaos. There are people who say, you're not Christian enough because you don't do this, or you don't do that. There are people who say, I and me a lot, when in fact it's about him, period. Now I'm going to wrap this up and I'm going to tell you that what comes next might be hurtful for some folks to hear. But we are in the wilderness and this is boot camp for the promise. When Christians gather in an institution like this one, there will always be among us those whose religion is very secular for whom the practices we do each week are means to another end. It's an opportunity for weekly socialization. It's an opportunity uh, for self-fulfillment in some peculiar way. These folks are often heard saying whenever the status quo is upset, we tried that before and it doesn't work. They are frequently the people who will say, We've never done it that way, or we've always done it this way. They are people who use the institution and the organization as a means to satisfy their flesh. Um, this one's going to hurt. How then is that any different from making a golden calf and calling it God? Why is that any different than saying God is not this invisible, omniscient, all-knowing, ever-present, timeless being who orders the life of the body of Christ, the capital C Church, but I find that all too difficult to grasp, so I'd rather mold a building in my image and organize its affairs according to my tastes and call it God. Ouch. That's making an idol and calling it God. And then they will persecute people who would oppose that. Not physically violent, not usually, but how many times in your experience in a long-standing church, one that you've been a part of for many, many years, have you seen one individual who's an old friend with a bad attitude and a worse temper hold the whole congregation hostage because people were afraid to confront them? And that person put so much pressure, or those people put so much pressure on the leadership that the leadership caves in like Aaron did and says, all right, what harm could it do? Besides, if I get their cooperation, I get their money, and uh, when I'm not accommodating them, I can go and do the things that I think are really important. Welcome to Washington, D.C. Selling your soul in order to do the one thing you promised you would do doesn't add up in my book, and I'm not trying to talk politics, I'm saying, again, what happens when we turn the church into a false image of God? We look more like politics than Christians. Persecution comes because doors are closed. 
People say, well, I'd pay for that, Pastor, but it'd have to be done my way. And Pastor has to say, well, how bad do I want it? Persecution comes because closed doors create cliques and fellowships and, and friendships in the church where everybody grows silent when the wrong person walks in the room. seems like the problem at Philadelphia is a lot more common than anybody realizes until they really wrestle with what Jesus is saying here. Because what Jesus ultimately tells them is, is do you understand that one day they're going to realize they were so wrong about this because they'll see you enjoying my righteous glory. You'll look to them like part of the very structure of my temple. You'll bear my father's blessing. And once again, he says that thing about giving you a new name. You know, he's going to give you a new name. I don't know what it's going to be, but he's going to give you a new name. Hold fast. Hold fast. Tighten the rigging. Stick to the playing gospel. And keep one hand on the lifeline while the other is at work with whatever your calling is. Because what happens too often is that we get so wrapped up in our calling that we fall away from our lifeline. Just like a sailor who climbs into the high reaches of the rigging and reaches with both hands to accomplish a task just as the ship pitches to one side or the other and they're cast into the ocean and nobody even notices they're gone. And they count, they do muster the next day and they realize they're missing somebody. One hand on the lifeline, one hand on the task. Let us pray. Thank you, God, for your word. Please burn it into our hearts, that at least which is entirely from you. Forgive this old broken vessel for any wrong speech and just re erase it from the minds of the people so that you are glorified and uplifted, we pray. Amen.